The way women pleasure themselves, 99% do so by touching themselves externally. But yet when we are with male partners, we're like, oh, maybe I don't need that. Go right to penetration. The pain that young women were experiencing, thinking they were broken and they were having very little sexual pleasure. The first step to orgasming with a partner is orgasm by yourself and know what brings you to orgasm and then transfer that to partner sex. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends, you are in for a enlightening, fun, potentially controversial episode today. I had so much fun reading Becoming Cliterate and preparing for this episode. Oh my goodness, I learned so much and it really, really drew attention to the problems of orgasm equality in our society today. I cannot thank Dr. Lori Mentz enough for her work. Connecting with her was so amazing. I was thrilled with this conversation and I can't wait to hear what you guys think. I cannot thank Dr. Mentz enough for what she is doing. This education surrounding female sexuality sexual health, orgasms is so, so needed. Thank you, Lori, for what you're doing. You are changing women's lives. And I am so honored to bring this conversation to the audience. And if you're a man listening, keep listening. I promise you this will likely help you as well in your relations with the ladies in your life. So definitely keep listening. Also, I feel like I got a little personal in this conversation. So we're just going to go with that. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash cliterate. That's C-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-E. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram. Also find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, 
they are not one ingredient, there is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code Melanie Avalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text Avalon X to 877-861-8318. That's Avalon X to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features, so I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now. Before we change to subscriptions, you can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, and they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Lori Mintz. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. Okay, I am going to just introduce today's guest and then um, give a little bit of introduction of myself with my own history with this whole topic. So I am here with Dr. Lori Mintz. She is a psychologist and sex therapist, and she has two books, A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex, and then her more recent book, Becoming Cliterate, Why Orgasm Equality Matters and How to Get It. Okay, friends. First of all, this book is one of the most incredible books I have ever read. I think it should be required reading for women everywhere. I honestly, honestly mean it. So I mentioned I was going to share a little bit about my whole story with this topic because we're going to dive deep into everything that is in that book, which is sex and the definition of sex and orgasms and orgasm equality and masturbation and the clitoris and all the things. So my background, I was actually raised very, very religious and I loved my upbringing. I loved my family. I I really, truly cherish my childhood. That said, the one thing I've always told myself if I ever had children that I think I would do very differently is how to approach the sex topic. And so my own experience with all of this is (laughs) everything was sort of very taboo growing up. When I went to college, my friend actually took me to get my first vibrator. And I can't wait to talk about vibrators today because I did not know about the history of them, and that is fascinating. Just a little note, I I do wonder if my mother's going to listen to this episode. But in any case, so my experience of everything was actually more with vibrators, and we're going to have to define sex in this conversation, sexual activity that wasn't 
exactly intercourse. And then I also was really interested historically in gender equality. I actually wrote a paper in college about Charcot at the Salpetriere in the 1800s, France, when they came up with the whole concept of hysteria, which I argued in my paper was a suppression of women. And I actually won a scholarship for that from the gender studies program at USC. So I've been very much interested in all of this for a long time. I realize I'm rambling all over the place, but I think there is just so many questions about what is sex, about a woman's experience of sex versus a male's, about orgasms, about should you orgasm, how should you orgasm, what's normal for orgasming. There is just so much here. That was a lot of rambling, but I just wanted to be an open book about where I'm coming from. And Dr. Mintz, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. And I loved listening to your the, the context and your history around this. I think we all have a history that informs this, that's in, also informed by culture in the way we're raised. So it was just fascinating for me to hear. Yeah, you talk about that all in the book, the role of culture and, you know, this concept of the pleasure gap in society, which maybe that's a good place to start. So maybe before that, I want to hear actually about you. What is your history? Like, were you always really interested in this topic? What made you want to be a sex therapist? Did you have an epiphany someday where you realized what was going on with sexual inequality and the pleasure gap, or what was your history? I went to grad school to be a therapist, and I didn't have sex therapy even on my radar, to tell you the truth. And for years, I taught and practiced, you know, out in a different area. I was actually specialized in eating disorders, which kind of interesting given your your work. And but I always talked to my clients about sex, et cetera. Because I was raised in an unusually sex-positive household. Some funny stories about my mother, if we want to circle back, about just how unusually sex-positive she was. So something I was always comfortable with and would always ask my clients about. And most times I would hear, yes, I'm having this problem. Yes, I'm having that. So I started kind of getting some trainings myself. But then what happened was to be really transparent when I had my second, I have two daughters, they're in their 30s, both of them. But when my second daughter was born, my sex drive just like went out the window, gone, done. And I knew as a therapist and a couples counselor, just how important sex was. So I started like talking to friends, talking to my own therapist, talking to my doctors, my OB, my GP. And I got the same answer from everyone oh yeah, me too, me too, me too. And I don't know what to do about it. Even a doctor said that to me. So I thought this is really a problem. So I did a deep dive into the, you know, the scientific and clinical literature and started like really understanding what was out there, what wasn't and realized there was really no self-help book out there. So I set about to translate that scientific literature into a self-help book, which was my first book. And I loved writing it. And when it was published, to be honest, the scientist in me clicked in because I'm also a researcher. And I was like, oh my gosh, what if I put something out in the universe and it's not helpful or harmful? So I started doing another deep dive into like the efficacy of self-help 
And some students did some randomized clinical trials on the book, found out, yes, it worked. But then one thing led to the other, and I soon found myself really immersed in the sex field and had the opportunity to teach a large enrollment undergrad class. And that is when my epiphany for the second book occurred, because what I discovered was the scientific literature on the orgasm gap. But even more important, the pain, the pain that young women were experiencing, thinking they were broken. And I discovered that a whole bunch of knowledge that I was raised with had been lost to this generation. And they were having sexual pain, very little sexual pleasure. So I started teaching to women's pleasure. And I would get notes from students in my class Like, this has changed my life. I'm orgasmic. Thanks to this class, my girlfriend's orgasmic. And I thought, this has to be beyond my students. I want to spread the word. And that's when I wrote Becoming Clitorate. Wow, that is incredible. So to clarify, the pain and everything that your students were experiencing, was this a co-ed class and you're noticing that from the women specifically? Yes, exactly. I use this clicker technology where I take polls, anonymous polls, and, you know, compare it to the research. And I discovered that, you know, like, for example, in one poll, 4% of the women versus like 65% of the men were having orgasms during hookup sex. 30% of the women were experiencing sexual pain. Like they all felt broken. They all thought, there was something wrong with them and they would start not just responding to the polls, but talking about how broken they felt sexually and how hard rather than pleasurable sex was for them. Wow. And you mentioned that, you know, this information that you had growing up was lost to this new generation. So to clarify about that, was it different historically for previous generations or just your upbringing was more open? So you were aware, like how long have these stats been this way? Great question. So there's a long history about the clitoris and women's pleasure and orgasm being lost and found, lost and found in culture. And I just happened to have my sexual coming of age during that very brief moment in time where everybody knew about the clitoris. Like there was Our Bodies Ourselves, this wonderful book, A New View of a Woman's Body that came out at the same time. And so it was just this very brief moment in time. Betty Dotson was out there doing her thing and it was brief. And now what we have is no sex ed. We're, you know, very poor sex ed in our country. We hear about the dangers of sex. We never hear about women's pleasure or orgasm. And on top of that, and I'm not anti-porn at all, we have porn, which is where people are getting their role modeling, their sex ed. So they have this, they have these false images with no accurate information to fix that. So that is where I think a lot of the problem lies. Like in high school and growing up, the extent of my sexual ideas or education beyond formal education would have been reading, like talking with friends and reading Cosmo, for example. And just thinking back to that, it was not about female, you know, pleasure on her own. It was 
always about like how to please the guy or like the sex position. It is very much focused, I feel, on the man. I'm super curious. So because like you said, the history has been waves and oscillating between awareness and not, and the focus has changed. So most recently, what ended that wave that you were in? What ended that wave? That is such a good question as well. I can't say exactly But honestly, I think it was the media hype and Betty Dotson, before she passed away, said the media hype around the G-spot has set us back to a Freudian era where we're all looking for some magic spot inside our vagina to make us orgasm. And it's not the the scientific stuff around the G-spot. That's excellent. It was the media hype that This is like this great new discovery and you can find this. You can orgasm from intercourse. Your vagina has this capability. And that set us back, even back to that Freudian era where women were, quote, supposed to. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You know, Freud said that once you're mature, you'll transfer your sensations from your clitoris to your vagina, which is like... like, that's like saying when we grow up. It makes no sense. <laughs> right. Our, we'll stop breathing out of our nose and we'll start breathing out of our ears. Like we don't, we, right? We don't change functions of organs, you know? And I think that has really done so much damage. And I think we started getting away from that where people in my era knew about the clitoris and that it's the source of women's pleasure And then this G-spot hype, I think, set it back. Plus, again, you know, no progress on sex ed. We've actually gone backwards in some ways. So all of those things, I think, have set us back. So I loved reading the part in your book about the G-spot because I definitely had that moment. I felt so validated because I had become, like I said, I got a vibrator in college and became very familiar with my clitoris and and all of that. And I distinctly remember reading something in some magazine about the G-spot. It said basically what you just said, that the G-spot was, if you hadn't experienced it, that it was this, you know, magical thing that was way better than anything else. And I was like, oh, I must be like, I... (laughs) Until I find this G-spot, I haven't experienced, you know, what I need to be experiencing. That is so, so fascinating. And you talked in your book, this blew my mind. I was wondering, because you mentioned that this was a theory. I was wondering if you actually agree with it. You said in the book that they've noticed that the G-spot makes the, well, we have to define vagina. We have to define all of our terms. (laughs) Makes our anatomy contract or like pushed downward. So maybe it had to do with giving birth and relieving pain compared to an orgasm from the clitoris, which pulls upward for sex. I was wondering if you if you do think that that might be the, the theory that's correct. Well, first of all, thank you for your detailed and careful read. And you're, you're sharing your G-spot story because it so resonates with so much of what I hear from people. And yeah, I do think, I mean, I think our genitals are just, there's so much to them that we don't know about still. But I do think that There is probably, I agree with that theory, I think there is probably an evolutionary factor for the G-spot, which isn't really a spot at all. It's really, it includes part of the vagina, part of the internal clitoris, and part of the urethra. But like you were saying, we know that if you push on it, for some people it's pleasurable, for some it's not, some it results in orgasm. But we know that pushing on it 
results in feeling less pain. And that is right where the baby's head comes through. And so it could have that evolutionary function that it's to decrease pain during childbirth. And we do also know, like you were saying, orgasms, when you have an orgasm from stimulating that area, your cervix pushes down. Whereas if you have an orgasm from stimulating the clitoris, it pulls up, which gives more evidence that hmm, maybe this was intended for evolution to make childbirth less painful. That is just so, so mind-blowing. I read that and I was like, wow. So I finally just thank you because now I I feel like I don't have to go in search of this elusive G-spot. So I keep using words and saying that we need to define words. And listeners, the reason I'm I'm saying that is because all throughout the book, you talk about how powerful language is and how we can't really make change until we're using language that is properly communicating what is happening. So for example, because just now I was going to say the word vagina, but you talk about how the vagina, we use this one word vagina to include all of these different things. So could you talk a little bit about the words and vagina versus vulva, which does vulva mean to be ashamed? So no, pudundum means to be ashamed. And that's what it's still used in medical terminology. So actually this language stuff, it was my favorite chapter in the book. It's my favorite topic. So I'm so appreciative of you asking about it. So the uh, X, the outside of our genitals is called the vulva. So it includes the inner lips, the outer lips, the mons, pubis, the clitoris, the clitoral glands and hood, and the vagina and the vaginal opening. The vagina is a canal where... Babies can come out, penises can go in, dildos and fingers can go in, yet we call our entire genitals a vagina. And by doing this, we are linguistically erasing the part of ourselves that gives us the most pleasure because we know that only 4 to 18% of us can orgasm from penetration alone. The rest need external clitoral stimulation. And so when we call our whole genitals a vagina, we're linguistically erasing the part that gives us the most pleasure and we're calling our genitals by the part that gives our male partners the most pleasure, not the part that gives us the most pleasure. Wow. Question about that that penetration. So that 4 to 18% of people who can orgasm from penetration alone are they actually orgasming from penetration or are they like indirectly orgasming from clitoral stimulation? Great question. The old surveys used to say, can you orgasm from intercourse? And used to find that 25 to 30% said, yes, they could. But then they realized, wait a minute, a lot of intercourse positions will stimulate the clitoris or you might touch yourself or use a vibrator. So then they refined the studies and said, can you orgasm from just a thrusting penis? And those pieces of research found like about 15 to 18% said yes. But I started thinking even that probably has social desirability effects or like how should I orgasm since we think we're supposed to orgasm that way. So in the research I've conducted, I just take out that part of the question And I say, what's your most reliable route to orgasm? And when I do that, only 4% say intercourse alone. So yeah, there are a 
people who can orgasm from just a thrusting penis. Certainly in the mainstream movies and porn, you'd think it was everyone, but in reality, (laughs) it is a very small percentage of us. Yeah, I love that, that reframe with how you ask the question. Do we have the same issues with the male and using the word penis to describe everything? No, we don't because the penis, well, I mean, there's the penis and then there's, you know, the the scrotum and that, but the penis is really where, I mean, besides the prostate for some, the penis is really where most sexual pleasure occurs and where men's most reliable route to orgasm does involve the penis. So calling their genitals, the penis doesn't have a, isn't a problem. And they don't call the whole area that either. They either say my penis, my balls, like they differentiate whereas we call the whole thing a vagina. And then on the the sex front, so the word sex, I'd love to dive into what we typically mean when we say that word. And one of my favorite things, I think, I don't know, I learned so much in this book, but I think one of the biggest ideas that stuck with me that I have told so many people since reading it, or I've just asked them to think about this, is you talk about how we define sex basically as intercourse where the male ejaculates and has an orgasm. And if a woman has an orgasm, it's usually in the foreplay or it's before the male does. But like the woman's orgasm is not the actual sex part. And then the sex ends when the male has an orgasm. You talk about how that's, you know, gender inequality and gender inequality on the flip side. Like it could just as easily be that the sex part is the female orgasm and then the male's orgasm is quote post play. And I was like, wow, (laughs) mind blown. So I was wondering this word sex, how do we define sex and how should we define it? Yeah. So in our culture, which is both male dominated and heteronormative, we use the word sex and intercourse as if they're one and the same. And there's so many problems with that. You know, in sex ed, for example, if people say don't have sex, like, you know, you'll get an STI, which is bad messaging anyway. But, you know, a lot of times lesbians or gay individuals will think, oh, I'm not at risk for an STI because they're thinking of penis and vagina. So they don't use protection. Doctors are not specific, even don't have sex. Well, is it the orgasm I'm not supposed to have? Is it the penis and the vagina? And people are too embarrassed to ask. But the biggest issue, I think, is it just reflects and perpetuates the overvaluing of male sexual pleasure and the devaluing of female pleasure. We are naming, we are saying the most important act is the penis and the vagina. And now some people will, and that everything that comes before is like you were saying, just foreplay, just a lead up to the main event when that lead up is what is most likely to bring women to orgasm. So exactly, I say in the book, if the tables were turned and it was women's pleasure we overvalued, we would call foreplay sex and intercourse postplay. I'm certainly not advocating that we turn the tables, but I am advocating that we equally value women's and men's most reliable route to orgasm and call the whole encounter sex regardless of what's happening. And then we can break it down by the actual words, oral sex, manual stimulation, intercourse. 
the whole thing should be considered sex if we're going to have gender equality in the bedroom. So here's my question to that. So this is a two-part question. So my question is, what is the role of procreation in our definition of sex? And because what I'm thinking, and I'm just thinking aloud now, and this might be rambling, but if as a species, the only purpose for sex is procreation, then I feel like you could make the argument that yes, sex would be this act that would hinge on the male ejaculating. But if it's beyond that, and I don't know if that's an evolutionary thing or a societal change where it could be about pleasure, not procreation, then I can see how you could have this new definition where sex is not, you know, all revolving around the male. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense. And in fact, I almost brought that up when I was talking about the definition. So I'm glad that you brought it up. That, yeah, a lot of people argue, well, you need the penis and the vagina for a baby, so that's why we we define it that way. But Cher Height, who was a wonderful woman who passed away a couple of years ago and was really the first person to write about women's need for clitoral stimulation, she had an article where she basically, I don't remember the quote exactly, but it was like the, the idea that procreation involves does not account for the way that female orgasm has been devalued, that no, it's not necessary for procreation. But the truth of the matter is, while the, while sex and procreation were sort of one and the same, maybe eons ago, maybe, I don't even know. I mean, there was people have sex for reasons way bigger than procreation. And in fact, most sex is not for procreation. You know, there was a study where they were asked people, why do you have sex? And they, they came up with like, there were over 200, I think it was 237 reasons people listed that they had sex with procreation being just one of them. So if if the only time people had sex was to make babies, I could go with that argument. And I do think there are some historical roots, but I think as a society, we've evolved and we don't need that definition anymore. And when I think about that, I think about, you know, we've evolved now. We don't use language changes as culture changes because it reflects and perpetuates it. We used to use the generic he for everything or mankind. And we've evolved not to do that anymore. And we're luckily evolving also to understand, you know, that not everybody identifies with the sex they're born with. So some people can identify as they or so I think we 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 can change this language because I think culture has changed. To dive into that even more, you mentioned how, you know, it's hard to know exactly when these changes happen, where sex was, you know, for all of these other reasons, not just procreation, a clitoral orgasm itself. You talk in the book about its potential purpose evolutionarily. What do you think is the purpose of the clitoral stimulation? Is it to bond you to your partner? I mean, one of the theories was that it helps women pick out a better mate because it's harder to achieve. So they would need a mate attentive to it. Yeah. Just like, why? Yeah. If, if I knew that answer, I'd probably win the prize because nobody really knows the, like there's, there was a great book by Elizabeth Lloyd called the case of the female orgasm. 
And basically, she went through about 20 theories all about why women orgasm. And there's so many. There's some that say, oh, yes, it is better for procreation because the uterus contracts and pulls the sperm up. Then there's others that say it makes it releases all those feel-good chemicals, makes you bond with your partner. And she debunked all of them in her book, and she concluded that it was just like the reason men have nipples is because women need them. And she basically said our orgasm is a fantastic bonus. We don't really need it, but it's great. Then there's two two theories that are interesting. One is the one you alluded to, that it's a feminist anthropological theory. And instead of saying, why do women orgasm? It says, why do women mostly not orgasm from intercourse? And the answer is to help them pick a good partner out because a guy who is attentive to your needs in the bedroom, not just focused on himself, will be a better partner outside of the bedroom. So I love that theory. But there's another theory, and I think it came out after the book, or just maybe it is in there because it came out just as it was going to press, where there was this cool new theory where they found that there are certain mammals who ovulate when they have penetrative sex. And they basically do that so that they can get pregnant. And for those mammals, their clitoris is inside the vagina. And they orgasm during penetration, and they ovulate, and they will get pregnant. And this theory goes that we used to be like that. But then when we started living in groups and having sex a lot more than just to procreate, that we moved to a monthly cycle, that, it, that our ovulation was based on time, cyclical, versus on penetration, and that to not confuse our bodies, our clitoris migrated from inside our vagina to outside. I don't know which theory I believe, but I can tell you orgasms are great and (laughs) I think women should be having more of them. (laughs) Hi friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I agree. Those theories are both really fascinating. Yeah. So I was actually thinking about, you're talking about orgasms being great. I was thinking about this because I was talking with a guy friend the other day. He was saying, can women really have multiple orgasms? And I was like, yes. He's like, really? Like He's like, it was blowing his mind. And then I took a moment where I was like, oh, wow, I should really not take this for granted, the ability to you know have multiple orgasms. So orgasms. What are orgasms? What is the experience of an orgasm for a male versus a female? I was really interested by your research on that. Yeah. So an orgasm is the same whether it's a male or a female. What it results in is there are these special capillaries in in erectile tissue. And what happens is when you're not aroused, the blood flows equally in and out of the capillaries. But when you are aroused, the blood flows in and it gets trapped. It doesn't come out. And it builds up to a point of intensity. And then the blood is released with rhythmic contractions of the pelvic floor muscles. And it's accompanied by a lot of other things, including the release of oxytocin, which makes you feel warm and cozy and loving and all of that. And in fact, there was a study where I love this study, they, they took descriptions of people's orgasms and then they took out anything that would give away the person's identity. Like if they mention ejaculation or penis or vagina, they edited those words out. So they then des- gave those descriptions to sex therapists and gynecologists and urologists and no one could tell the difference between a description written by a man or a woman they all describe this incredible buildup of tension and then a release of the tension accompanied by euphoric, peaceful feelings. Why for men is it, you know, they have to have a much longer time before they can have that again, whereas women seemingly can have a lot? Like for me, and I'm just being an open book, um, I, I mean, I could just do it all night. And it doesn't take me long in between to like have another orgasm. Like I can just do it over and over. Is that the way most women are? Yeah. Well, I'm like that too. So I'll be an open book and we all not for some women, they want multiple orgasms. They're actually, you know, and they're, you know, a better word for them actually that I learned along the line is sequential. They happen like boom, 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 boom. And The reason is that we don't have a refractory period, which is a period of time in which another, for men, it's actually another ejaculation is impossible. And it's, it seems to be due, the latest science is it seems to be due to levels of prolactin 
in the body. And so there are, there are a few men, very, very few, very rare. There's been studies of men who can have multiple orgasms. And the interesting thing, it's very rare. And I always tell people when I explain these studies, don't run out and try to do this. Like, it's sort of like women trying to squirt when they're not squirters. Like, don't do things. Don't make your body do things it doesn't do. Enjoy what it does. But these men seem to have one thing they have is they have lower levels of prolactin circulating in their body because prolactin is what causes that refractory period. Do females' prolactin levels affect that? No. I mean, for some reason, and I don't, I'm not like a big, I don't know all the details, but we don't have those levels of prolactin that are released as in those that affects us in that way. So it's, so no, it's so funny because I write about the orgasm gap, which is, you know, the finding that when women and men get it on, the women are having substantially fewer orgasms than the men. And it's a cultural problem. But then I'm always getting somebody writing, that's not true. The orgasm gap goes the other way because women can have more. (laughs) And it's like, no, 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 that's not the point. The point is when we're having these sexual encounters where half the population is having, you know, no orgasms or way fewer, that's the orgasm gap. And it's not biological. It's not because our orgasms are difficult or elusive because we know how to do it when we're alone. And we also orgasm more when we're with other women. So it's related to the way we do heterosexual sex. Definitely want to dive into that some more. Some last quick questions about what we're talking about. This is just a granular question. You said how the experience of the orgasm is seemingly the same between the genders. Is the actual like time length of the actual orgasm occurrence the same, do you know, or does it vary or is it longer for one? That is a great question that I vaguely know the answer to somewhere in the recesses of my sex nerdy brain, but I can't pull it up right now. But so don't, this is just coming up from what I remember. So don't quote me. Well, you quote me because I'm right here saying it, but I think they're also pretty similar yet. There is human variation in terms of how long an orgasm lasts with some lasting longer than others, particularly for women. And this is super random. I had James Nestor on the show for his book, Breath, and he talks about how there's erectile tissue in the nose. I was wondering, have you heard about that and why we don't have orgasms in our nose? Oh, that is so interesting. No, that is new to me. There's erectile tissue in our nose? See, I'm so focused on studying the genitals. I had no idea. Tell me about that. (laughs) I'll send you the link. And his book is so amazing, all about breathing and, yeah, breathing. (laughs) But, but, yeah, so apparently there's erectile tissue in the nose, and there's actually this condition called honeymoon rhinitis, I think. Again, okay, don't quote me on that. And it has something to do – I have to look it up again – but something to do with women getting – or I don't know if it's women and men, but getting aroused – making you like sneeze and like there's some connection there. Oh, how interesting. Well, I know that there is also a lot, and I don't know if he talked about this, but phonomes are for real, like that we are sometimes attracted to people based on their smell. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Now I'm just thinking in my head because you're talking about the pheromones. How do you say it, pheromones? Yes. I I was thinking about it because have you (laughs) – 
I don't watch a lot of reality television. I don't really watch any, but I don't know why. I just love this show, Love is Blind. Have you seen it on Netflix? I've heard of it. I want to watch it. Yes. I've been thinking about it a lot because I just finished the second season and the contestants basically talk to each other through a wall. So they don't see each other and they quote fall in love and they propose and then they meet each other in, in real life. And I was watching the um, the last episode last night actually and they were having this intense debate because they're trying to push the idea that love is blind. But I was thinking about it. And I think going back to our use of the word language, like we need to have different words for love, but this is just such a tangent. I don't know that love is blind because there is that aspect of pheromones and like physical compatibility and romantic attraction. Like, can you just, you know, leave that out? So maybe that's a topic for another day. Yeah, I don't think it's blind. I mean, I think we know. I mean, there's research that shows that the way someone looks, the way someone smells is going to influence our attraction to them. Maybe not our love for them as a friend or as a person, but in terms of sexual attraction, you know, and it's not like we're all just attracted to the most, you know, movie star gorgeous. Like it's, it's an idiosyncratic, unique thing that happens, this chemical reaction between people. And actually this dovetails into a nice other topic that you talk about, which is the role of, should we separate the cultural implications of, well, sex (laughs) and intercourse and sexual relations between two people and whether or not it, it is in the context of a relationship or if it's this whole hooking up thing. You talk a lot about hooking up culture. What are the stats on how men versus women orgasm during hooking up, feel about it afterwards? You know, like the double standard, shame, slut shaming. What are your thoughts about all of that, how it presents in culture today? Yeah. So, I mean, I think hooking up is not new. That's one thing to know, first of all. Like there's this narrative out there that this generation is hooking up and we didn't in our older generation. And the research is is pretty clear about that. Hookups have been going on for a long time. They used to have a different name though, one night stands, etc. So it's not this new thing, but we do know that hookup culture is not very satisfying to most women. Not not all women that the orgasm gap is the biggest in hookup sex. And I just taught this class and some of my students' comments were so fascinating to me. So we know that like that is where the gap is the biggest and why it's also because there's a huge oral sex gap in hookups. Men are much more likely to receive oral sex than women in hookups. And like the women, to be really graphic, the women in my class told me that the way hookups go for them, not always, but typically it's a blowjob followed by intercourse and period. So nothing really for her. And there's a lot of evidence now too, this, that a lot of times men are doing things they've seen in porn in hookups, like slapping, choking, even anal sex, which can be really painful and dangerous if you don't talk about it, you know, prepare for it. But they don't know that because I'm not blaming men. They've seen this in porn. And so the bottom line is, you know, hookups are here to stay, but 
to me, it's really an example of the sexual revolution of the 60s made it acceptable for women to have intercourse before marriage, outside of marriage. But it did nothing to ensure that those encounters would be equally pleasurable for both. And we know some of the women in my class were saying, you know, hookups can be empowering and you can get your needs met, but it definitely takes a lot of effort and a lot of clear communication and a lot of this is what I want, which many young women have not been socialized to feel empowered to do. So speaking to that and the role of communication, so I'm wondering where does the responsibility lie in addressing this pleasure gap? Is it up to women to learn how to receive this pleasure or achieve this pleasure themselves? It's interesting because I'm thinking back, I was thinking about this. For me, since I was playing around more with vibrators and my and myself before with partners, I think it actually gave me a more, for at least for me, a more beneficial experience when I was actually having intercourse because I came prepared with skills and like knowing what worked for me and what didn't compared to some of my friends I know who were having sex from much younger ages. And so they were kind of learning in the context of being with a male. So, you know, actually closing this pleasure gap, where do we start? Do we start with masturbation? Yes. Well, I think we start, it depends if we're talking about closing it culturally or in individual bedrooms. But if we're talking about in individual bedrooms, masturbation is an essential step because you know, the first step to orgasming with a partner is getting, or the most essential step, actually, it's really important, but underutilized and obvious advice is you have to get the same stimulation alone as you do with a partner. And, you know, we know men are getting that stimulation. The stimulation of masturbation is very similar to the stimulation of intercourse, whereas the way women pleasure themselves, 99%, 99% do so by touching themselves externally, sometimes alone and sometimes coupled with penetration. But yet when we are with male partners, we're like, oh, maybe I don't need that. Go right to penetration. So the and every woman needs something a slightly different to orgasm. Everybody's genital nerves are positioned a bit differently. So the first step to orgasming with a partner is orgasm by yourself and know what brings you to orgasm and then transfer that to partner sex. With the masturbation, because I mentioned in the beginning how you talk about the history of the vibrator in your book. Wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about that history because it is fascinating. Yes, I can. But unfortunately, since the book came out, that history, which has been widely talked about in this, has been debunked. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes. So I can't really talk about it with accuracy anymore. So, but we could still talk about how great vibrators are and I could debunk all the myths surrounding them. That would be great. So um, can I say what they used to think it was? Sure. So what they used to think it was with the vibrator was, so did the whole thing get debunked? Even the, the fact that women would go see doctors to relieve these hysteria symptoms and the doctors would basically press on their clitoris? Yes, it's all been debunked. 
it came from a book that someone wrote that apparently no one fact-checked well enough and it became so important such widely known like it's in text sex therapy textbooks it's all over and a paper just came out saying like basically this was false news just to go like broader topics beyond that i feel like that happens with a lot of things and it's concerning <laughs> you know like there's some you know a fact will be established that was never fact checked and then it just once it infiltrates literature and w- it just needs to get in like one official publication and then you can quote that publication so it's really hard to undo you know something like that that is taken off it, it really is and it is very concerning very concerning okay so if that's not what was happening if vibrators were not invented to relieve doctors' tired hands from pressing on women's clitorises when they were having hysteria symptoms. Do we know what led to the invention of the vibrator? No, we don't. We do know that it was invented. It was the fourth appliance to be in like electric appliance to be invented. And we do know it used to be advertised in women's magazine as like a personal massager. We know that women have liked vibration for centuries. One thing I came across that I thought was fascinating was before electric vibrators, women would put bees in a box because if you put a bunch of bees in a tight box, they go and it vibrates the box and they used to hold the box against their vulvas. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Wow. That is crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I have a vibrator and not a bunch of buzzing bees. Because, like, what if the box opens? <laughs> that seems real dangerous. <laughs> real fast. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah, actually, I remember going back to my first vibrator experience. I remember being so, not jealous, but I was so in awe. Because my friend who took me to get it, her relationship growing up with her mom sounds a lot more similar to your relationship growing up where it was just like open, you know, all open. And her mom took her to get her first vibrator. And I was just like, wow, that would be so nice to like have that open dialogue, you know, with your mom or just to be raised that way. So going back to the vibrator. So I think one of the concerns people have is that you will become addicted, that you will, you know, learn how to have an orgasm only one way with your vibrator. And that's a bad thing. What are your thoughts about that? Okay. I have so many thoughts about that. (laughs) Well, first of all, like that is true of any type of sexual stimulation. Like you get habituated. So if you always use your hands, you probably use your hands the same way. And you'll always want to use your hands the same way. So it's not unique to vibrators. But the idea that you shouldn't need a vibrator, like that's an idea that you should be able to orgasm with body parts and especially a penis. And I think that's just really an outdated idea. And we know that women who use vibrators have easier and more frequent orgasms and less sexual pain. And, you know, think about this is we don't tell men to not habituate. We don't say, if you always orgasm from intercourse, you might always need intercourse. Why don't we switch it up so you don't always need the same thing? It's only when it comes to women's orgasms that we regulate and have these ideas that they should occur in a certain way. And, you know, part of it also, it goes to another myth that, 
vibrators are going to threaten men. They're going to replace men. And no, they're just a tool to get the job done faster and more efficiently. It's sort of like carpenters don't get addicted to power tools. I love that. Yeah, they just have a much easier time when they use them. And we also know that uh, women's sexual satisfaction is highly correlated to a male partner's acceptance of her vibrator use. So my answer to that is if you always like your vibrator, then always use it. You can use it on yourself during intercourse. You can teach your partner to use it on you. You can use it on yourself while your partner kisses you, caresses other parts of your body. There are so many fun ways to incorporate a vibrator into sex. And here's something else that isn't in the book that I've discovered and learned recently from a wonderful urologist named Rachel Rubin, who basically, she says penises are just big clitorises, which they are, just outside of the body. And penises love vibration too. And your partner, if you're vibrating while his penis is down there, he's going to catch what I call vicarious vibes and he's going to enjoy it too. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, 
It actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes question about the actual effect on our clitoris from the vibrators. So one of the things I've heard is that it's bad if you use a vibrator because, you know, if you get used to needing more and more stimulation, then you'll always need more and more stimulation. Does anything actually happen with the nerves? You talked about some rabbit studies with vibrators. Like, is there a tolerance effect? Does it increase or decrease nerves? Yeah, we don't really have research on humans, but there is a study uh, where they use vibration on rabbits clitorises, which are strikingly similar to female human clitorises. Oh, really? Yeah. And they generated more nerves. It's not just the opposite. They became more responsive. You know, people say, oh, I need more and more. And I've heard that from some people, but I think I think there could be a psychological component of people who are like terrified of their vibrator or, you know, buying into, into these myths. And, you know, the idea that it desensitizes your clit, what does that mean? Does it mean that you get used to the stimulation, like habituated? Well, again, that's to any sexual stimulation. And two, if you do vibrate too hard, you know, when you go numb or whatever, it's the same as riding a bike and your butt goes numb. Get off the bike, take a break. It's fine. There was a study about sex toy injuries and the bottom line is they are exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare. And in fact, the sexual health benefits were much more pronounced in this study. Okay. I love that. And question about integrating it with a partner. So I was so glad that you discussed this in the book and you just talked about it now, which is men's response to women wanting to use vibrators. So basically I made a, I made a decision in my head that if we just discuss at the beginning that I like integrating vibrators, you know, from the get go and Doing that, the majority of men that I've been with have been very open to it. They've actually liked it. Like they have no problem. There has been some times where I think they're a little bit emasculated. Like they, 
they feel like if there's a vibrator involved, that means they're not able to, you know, do it themselves. What is your advice for women for how to bring this up with the man? Like, how do we couch it? I think it's great that you have done that and you probably have great advice. I'd love to hear how you broach it with a new partner, but I would say very straightforward. And, you know, hey, my bringing my vibrator with me because I really like orgasming that way. And, you know, I can teach you to use it. I can use it on myself, you know, whatever. And if the guy says like, no way, then I'd say no to the guy, not no, no, not no to the vibrator. (laughs) If they said no, I'd be like, okay, bye. (laughs) Yeah. my, My experience has been, so the way I couch it and phrase it, and it's because this is just the truth of the matter is, and it's actually something that you talk about in the book as well. I get, I don't know if it's spectatoring or I just, I would get two in my head about feeling like the other person, and you talk about this too, like that pressure would be on the guy to help me have an orgasm. And that's really stressful for me. Like, I don't want anybody to have to deal with that. Like I know what will work. So everybody can just, I just feel more comfortable if we can just all be on the same page at the beginning. Yeah. If they were to say no, then I mean, that would be non-negotiable for me, but there is this issue still where they're fine with it, but I get this sense that they're emasculated and I just don't know what to do with that. Like, mm-hmm. I guess I can answer that both with a research study that's really sort of speaks to this that came out since the book was published and also sort of a metaphor I use in the book that I think really helps men understand. So I'll start with the study. There was a study done by someone basically where they asked, you know, if you have sex with someone and she orgasms like from oral or manual or vibrator or intercourse, like what's your reaction? And the men felt most masculine, not surprisingly, when she orgasmed, but from intercourse. But what was surprising is they felt pretty equally masculine if it was from oral or manual, but really less masculine if it was a vibrator. So it was like, well, if I did it with my own body, it was fine. And that's really a shame because it goes to the myth that that men should, quote, give a woman an orgasm versus we're all responsible for our own sexual pleasure during a sexual encounter. And in fact, the best sexual encounters ironically, are when both people are immersed in their own pleasure. And the metaphor I often use, and I use it in the book, is imagine if you and your partner were spending the day at the swimming pool and there was a raft there and you hopped on the raft and you hopped off the raft and you kissed on the raft, you kissed off the raft, you splashed on it, you splashed off, just had a lovely day in the sun in the pool You would not go home and call your friend and go, oh, me and my raft had the best day together. And oh, my boyfriend was there too. You you wouldn't even mention the raft. It was just a tool to enhance the swimming. And a vibrator is the same. You're still having a sexual encounter with the other person. It's not like you're having a sexual encounter with your vibrator and that person happens to be there you're still having an encounter with another person and the vibrator is just a tool to enhance the experience. Love that analogy so much. So actually transferring 
you know, your own masturbation techniques to sexual encounters with a partner. Do most things transfer? Do some things not transfer? If people are using vibrators, do you suggest that they get different types of vibrators when they're actually with a partner? No, I think everything can be transferred with communication and creativity. Now, some ways are harder than others. So for example, if you use a little handheld vibrator, that's going to be easier to use on yourself during intercourse, for example, than a big magic wand. But you can certainly have fool around, be aroused, have intercourse, he comes, then use the magic wand. And there are some people who masturbate by running water, for example, in the bathtub, or rhythmically squeezing their thighs together. Those are going to be a little harder to transfer than a vibrator, but they still can be done. I helped a client who the only way she could orgasm was with the running water. So they would have a sexual encounter, her and her partner, and it would be great and fun and he would orgasm and then they'd hop in the bathtub and he would hold her while she ran the water. So anything can be transferred with communication and creativity. I love that. How do you feel about, we touched on this a bit now, but so let's say a woman is very comfortable with herself and masturbating and has her technique for reaching an orgasm. I feel like all the magazines are like, but you, you need to be doing it this way. And there's like a different way to do it. How do you feel about that? Like, should we try to find different ways? Is it possible there are a lot of better ways of experiencing orgasm, but we get complacent and do the one thing that we're doing? I guess I'm wondering, are there like different orgasms out there? And I'll never know if I don't go looking for them. Yeah. So that's like another thing. I always think about what we do with men's orgasms. You don't find articles on the 10 ways for men to orgasm. I mean, you don't, you know, it's only when it comes to our orgasm, there's always a fad. There's always a 20 ways to orgasm. And, you know, sure, experimentation is fun for fun's sake, for learning about your body, but trying to think that there's an orgasm that's better than the one you're having, if you're still enjoying it, as Betty Dotson used to say, an orgasm is an orgasm is an orgasm, meaning However you get it is fine. And I think that idea of these, like the 20 ways to orgasm just really buys into that really false orgasm hierarchy we have for women, that there's a better way, a best way. And if you look at a lot of those best ways, they generally involve something inside the vagina, which again, is not the way most of us orgasm. I also felt really validated by those stats in the book because- When you think of a vibrator, I think a lot of us think of ones that are like dildos that presumably have that purpose of putting inside of yourself. That's never been a thing for me. And I've always just been like, am I the odd one out here? No, not at all. (laughs) Yeah. So reading those stats was very helpful. Also involved with all of that. So you do have a lot in the book about our actual anatomy And you talk about how, you know, you find anatomy a little bit dry, but it is really important. So how important is it that we actually understand the anatomy of our clitoris? And maybe you could talk a little bit about that actual anatomy because you have exercises in the book where you actually look at your clitoris. Is that important to do? I think so. And in treating women who've never orgasmed, the first step is always teaching them anatomy 
and sending them home to look at themselves because in the words of another author, Sherry Winston, if you don't know what you have, you how can you play with it thoroughly and well and teach a partner to? You know, and it does take effort. You know, men touch their penis from the time they're little boys several times a day to urinate. We don't ever have to look at ourselves. And so many times we've been socialized that it's ugly or icky, and that's not going to make you feel very good sexually either. So I think it's important really important to not only know what your anatomy is, but to appreciate its beauty. Is it when we have an orgasm that the clitoris actually disappears? Yes. During the plateau stage, stage right before an orgasm, the clitoris like pulls back and it becomes hard to find. It's a great irony. (laughs) And then I love how you said in the book that there's all this debate about, is it like how many bulbs there are? Or there's like debates about what the anatomy actually is? Yes, we just, it's so interesting how little we still know about female genital anatomy. The internal clitoris wasn't discovered till the late 90s. What? The late 90s? Yep, 1998, Helen O'Connell published her first study and it wasn't until 2005 that they did the first MRI of the internal clitoris. So, there's and even when I was trying to write the anatomy chapter, I can tell you I shed more tears writing that chapter and almost like, you know, really like practically just had a breakdown because I would find conflicting information. So many things that aren't known about our own our genital anatomy. So it's really important to know your own anatomy. I think it's an essential step to empowerment, to sexual empowerment. That really, really speaks to, I guess, just how big this cultural issue is. Two things you just mentioned. On the one hand, you talk about how we have this, often this intrinsic feeling of we don't want to look at it or it's icky. So I very much, the reason I asked the question about looking is because I was like, I I can't. (laughs) So I'm I'm so... um, you know, like I, I'm so team clitorate. I, I do my nightly orgasm for health. It's like my one orgasm a day goal, but I have this. So like when you talk in the book about like looking at yourself, I'm like, I just don't know that I can. I find that fascinating. I guess that goes to, you know, religious upbringing. And I highly doubt that that's evolutionary where we can't look at a part of our body. No, you know, and I've had clients who say the same thing. I had one client who, you know, really empowered, considered herself a feminist. And she was like, oh, I can't, I can't. And then she did. And she's like, it's so ugly, <laughs> you know. And and we spent a lot of time working on that till she could look at herself and say, you know what, it's kind of beautiful. You know, certainly I would never like push or force anyone to do anything you know, and you seem like you're totally empowered and you're having orgasms and you're bringing your, you know, vibrator to bed. So, you know, part of me says, well, maybe you're okay not looking, but the fact that such an empowered woman is having trouble looking is something to look at and on, no pen intended, it's something to really look at and unpack. And why, why is it so scary to look, quote down there? I find it so, so fascinating. Like I'm okay looking externally, but the exercises of like opening up and everything and looking internally is what makes me feel very uncomfortable. So 
I should work with my therapist on this. And um, I, I think, yeah, so the, the two things I just think speak to how much this is a problem that might be ingrained is, you know, women who do feel that that discomfort with looking at themselves. And then what you just said about the shocking lack of research. I mean, that is shocking, that lack of research. That is shocking to me. Is it? Yes. And I just read something else too. I mean, it's just like the misogyny. And again, I'm not blaming men. I'm married to a man. I've been married to the same man for like 37 years. I have men, friends, people. I do not blame men for this. I blame culture. But there is so much misogyny still, not just around sex, but even in sexual medicine. There, Someone just did a count about how many studies there are on erectile dysfunction versus sexual pain. And it's it's astounding how little attention is paid to women's sexuality. I was speaking with a friend of mine who's a gynecologist and she's like, we don't learn about sex in, in medical school. We, we don't, we hardly learn about the clitoris basically in anatomy, let alone sexual pleasure. And these are gynecologists. I've actually started taking note because I read a lot of health-related books having this show, and I've started paying attention to when erectile dysfunction is mentioned, do they mention female issues on the other side? And it's very rare. I don't know. There's just so much attention around the male side of things and, and not the female. That made me think of one just random question. The actual clitoris and the anatomy, actually, I had another guest on this show, and she was saying that everything is the clitoris, like even the G-spot, like the whole thing. Do you have thoughts on that? Well, so everything isn't the clitoris, but the clitoris is the biggest part of our anatomy. It's a vast internal and external organ. The hood and the gland, the, the hood and the glands are the only part that can be seen externally, but there's also legs and bulbs and in fact, the G-spot, the real name for it is the clitoral urethral vaginal complex because it includes part of the clitoris, part of the, the legs, part of the urethra, and part of the vaginal wall. But there is some thinking that maybe we could get away with, not get away with, but get away from this horrible hierarchy we have of vaginal orgasms that are better than clitoral if we called our whole unit, our whole genitals, instead of even vulva and vagina, if we had one name for the whole interconnected unit. And Helen O'Connell, who's the person who discovered the internal clitoris and made it public, says "Why it, it's the biggest organ down there. Why don't we call the whole thing a clitoris? Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. 
I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Has there been any update? You talk in the book about how you propose that we use a different name for clitoris to make it more approachable. Have you seen anything culturally with that? No, no, that's so funny. I, that was like where the whole book idea, part of it besides my students started is thinking, you know, we have more nicknames for the penis than any other word in the human language. And they're all like people's names, like it gives them an entity. That's where I got the idea. Let's nickname the clitoris like as someone's name to give it more legitimacy. I I have seen, I do think culture is changing. I think more and more people are naming their clitoris, talking about it, talking about clitoral stimulation, talking about female orgasm. But I don't think we have a name like Dick. Like we have, we don't yet have a name that everybody's comfortable saying. I wonder if that will happen. I would love it. Yeah. I proposed in the book, as you know, I proposed either Tori because it's short for, you know, it's in the word clitoris or Cleo, but neither have caught on. Although my students did make me a t-shirt that says, I love Tori. So (laughs) I love that. Two other quick questions about the clitoris. Is it true, and you talk about this in the book, but is it true that it has the most nerves of anything in our body? So that stat you hear over and over that it has 4,000 to 6,000 nerve endings, that's another one of those things that's made its way into culture and is not scientifically accurate. What is accurate is that there is about the same amount of nerve endings on the glands of the clitoris as there is on the hood of the penis. It's just that there, it is the most densely packed. So it is the smallest size with the most nerve endings. As another author said, take all the nerve endings in the head of the penis and put them in a pencil eraser. So it's the most densely packed nerve endings of anywhere on the human body. And is it true that it's the only organ? Is it an organ? The only organ for... Pleasure. Yes. That was said by Masters and Johnson's eons ago that it's it's unique in the whole human body. It's, it has no other purpose but sexual pleasure, whereas the penis, you also use it to pee or to procreate. There's more and more people kind of doing research. Maybe it does have a function in terms of, you know, procreation, et cetera, but nobody's found it yet for sure. So At this point, the idea stands that it is the only organ in the human body just for pleasure. What a cool organ we have. That is so cool. I actually find that a very, very valid argument for at least the religious context of everything, because I really like reevaluating what I was taught growing up and what is actually happening. I mean... 
like that's a pretty valid argument for religion. You know, why would we have an organ entirely devoted to pleasure if we weren't supposed to be having this pleasure? Do you know, is there a lot of discussion of masturbation in the Bible? That is so interesting. There's a wonderful person named Rev Bev. If you look her up on YouTube, she's a minister and very sex positive. She basically talks about that the Bible is not against pleasure. It's against hedonism, like pleasure above all else, but it's not against pleasure. And that according to her, The Bible says absolutely nothing about masturbation. It for sure says nothing about female masturbation. And the story that is often told against masturbation is the story of Oman who spilled his seed. So he was, his brother died. And in the old days, When that happened, the brother was supposed to have intercourse with the wife, the widow, to create a child. And so Oman was supposed to do this, and it said, but he didn't. Instead, he spilled his seed, and, you know, God was very mad at him. And according to Rev Bev, that is not about masturbation. That's about pulling out before he ejaculated in the vagina. I remember reading that study because, like I said, I was raised very religious. I went to a Christian high school. We read all the the stories. (laughs) And I remember reading that when I was relatively young. I mean, I'm assuming I knew what masturbation was at the time. I remember reading that, and I did not at all think that that meant masturbation. Like, it never occurred to me that that was what people thought that that meant. What about other cultures? Do you know, is masturbation, is it... I don't even know if they use the word sin in other cultures. Is it forbidden in other religions? It's forbidden in some, but not all. There are some religions that are fine with it and some that aren't, which again, whenever I hear that some religions say this, some religions say that, my response is, ah, that means there really is no universal truth on this. <laughs> and it's 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 so culturally bound, but we also know Like when I work with religious clients and, you know, masturbation is the most empirically supported technique to help women learn to orgasm. Like it's, you know, I tell them like, this is based on science, you know, that we know this helps. It's a, it's like you're, you know, I sometimes have to say like, I'm your doctor. This is, I'm sending you home with a prescription to masturbate. And we also know that masturbation, instead of being, you know, all those things we used to hear, makes warts on your hands and all these hairy palms and all that, that in fact, we know that it's not the masturbation, but masturbation induced orgasms. They're good for immune functioning. They're good for sleep. They're good for stress reduction. And even we even know that infants will touch themselves. There's some touching going on even in the womb. Like one of the best quotes I've ever heard is, God made us so our hands can reach our genitals. There's a function for that. <laughs> There's a reason for that. It wasn't just to tempt us. I love that. Do you still work with clients? I do. I do. Do you work with specific topics with clients as a sex therapist? I've never been to a sex therapist. Is there a main trend of issues that people are coming to sex therapy for? Yeah. So, you know, most people who seek me out, 
sometimes I, it's not all sex therapy. I see people for, you know, depression, anxiety, like, you know, ups, you know, grief. So it's not all sex therapy, but the people who seek me out for sex therapy, the two most common concerns I see are, and this is probably because they're the topic of my books, people seek me out for diminished sexual desire and inability to orgasm. But I also work with all kinds of stuff. Like I, you know, right now I'm working with someone who is trying to figure out their sexual and gender identity. You know, somebody who is, you know, coming to terms with what it means that they're interested in kinky sex and, you know, kind of letting go of shame of that. So, you know, I work with couples who stopped having sex and want to restart. So it is sort of anything goes, but there are certain things that just like any specialty, like I know certain things better than others. And if I get a client who is not in my wheelhouse, I'll refer them to someone who is. This actually speaks to a topic as well, just about therapy and therapists. I think there's been a lot of forward progress with this, but I I still feel like culturally there's this idea that if you have a therapist, that there's something wrong with you or that there's something wrong. And it's just interesting to me because it's so important to me that I have a therapist and I've had a therapist for probably seven years or so, not the same one. For me, I'm so open about it. And I just think it's so normal and so helpful. And I think everybody should have a therapist, but I forget that I do think culturally people aren't always open to it. Like this week, even I was going to my, my cryotherapy appointment and I was talking with a girl and we were talking about our day. And I was like, yeah, I just came for my therapist. And she was like, oh, well, you know, I hope everything's okay with that. I was like, oh no, it's not like, <laughs> like it's, I just find it really interesting. The cultural response to, to therapy. Do you have thoughts about that? I think therapy is wonderful. I mean, I've seen people make wonderful changes. I have many clients who just come to have a space to talk freely, to gain insight on themselves. Like I, I think it's, a. I mean, I wish people were more open and I think it's varied by areas of the country. Like in New York and California, I think you're more likely to hear everyone talk about their therapist than maybe in like, North Dakota or something, you know, but no, I think therapy is, I love being a therapist because I love, love helping people feel heard and understood and make changes. And I've had a therapist myself. I think most good therapists should be in therapy themselves to constantly work on their issues and make sure their stuff doesn't get in the way. And also just for self-understanding and insight and you know, I also think like we don't listen to each other. It's so rare that someone can just listen carefully, reflect back what you're feeling and not either make it about them or try to fix it. And there is so much power in just being heard, just being validated. I could not agree more. I was reading about, I brought this this woman on recently all about the biofield and, and healing energy, but she talked about how, oh, this is bad because I don't have any of the details. She talked about some of the first, I think it was the evolution of hypnosis maybe, but how, how the way it started was the therapist, he would just sit there and provide like unconditional acceptance basically. And people would be healed of these issues. But basically, yeah, that idea of just having that other person listening and accepting, there's so much power to that. And also in the book, 
listeners, there's a whole lot about the role of mindfulness and how important that is actually in addressing the potential pleasure gap and the issues that happen with men and women and sexual relations. That helps me a lot because I mentioned this earlier, but what I get in my head about is it's so funny because it's like performance issues, but it's not really about me. It's about feeling like I have to fulfill this stereotype of having this orgasm or it's just really, really interesting. It's hard to be in the moment when you're so worried about fulfilling these stereotypes that culture puts upon us. And I guess it does go back to the fact that men orgasm so easily and women don't. Is that the root of that? Well, I think or women actually orgasm just as easy as men when their clitoris is stimulated. <laughs> There's studies that show that we, when we masturbate, we both orgasm like easily and within minutes. So I think it's, it's partially that, but I also think we're just anxious beings. Like the, the power, I mean, the power of our mind is so interesting in the sense that like, I love mindfulness and I love thinking about it and learning about it. And I just, I'm reading this book myself right now called Self-Compassion. And I love this quote that the author Neff has, she talks about, how the past only exists in our memory, in the future, in our imagination. And we're all really need to be in the here and now. And, you know, our brains are phenomenal, right? Because we can learn from the past by thinking about it. We can solve problems by thinking forward. But nine times out of 10, when we're thinking about the past or the future, we're not solving problems or learning from the past. We're just ruminating. And, So, I mean, getting back to sex, that to have an orgasm requires completely turning off your thinking brain. And because you cannot be having an orgasm thinking, am I going to have an orgasm? How do I look? Uh Uh-oh, I forgot to return that email. Like to be orgasmic requires a complete immersion in your bodily sensations and having your mind and body in the same place. And we know that the brain state of deep mindfulness meditation is actually very similar, if not identical, to the brain state right before orgasm. You're not thinking, you're just in the present. And it benefits men too, because they get anxious and am I going to make her come? Am I going to come too soon? Is my erection going to go away? But we also know that women do think more about during sex, about things that they've left undone, oops, that email, or about if they're doing it right, if they look okay, if they smell okay, if their partner's happy. So I do think there's some socialization effects of our brains wandering more during sex and mindfulness is the antidote to that. I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of my questions. How much is there a top down versus a bottom up to orgasm? So They'll say that you can think your way to an orgasm. Is that possible? So there are some very rare women who can orgasm without any touch. They can think themselves to orgasm, but it's very rare. So yes, just like there are women who can orgasm from just breast stimulation or just, you know, penetration. There's some that can orgasm from thinking alone, but again, it's pretty rare. So this is a very granular question. And I don't know if you would know the answer, but the role of the mind and the orgasm, does it vary between women where, so let's say we had like all these women and they have a baseline level of stress, which would be impeding their orgasm. 
how powerful is actually turning on the physical stimulus of the clitoris? Like for some women, could they be stressed? But if they, you know, stimulate themselves right physically, that will pull them in and break that barrier. And then it won't matter that they were stressed before. Or is it possible just to be so stressed that you're not going to have an orgasm? Both are true. So I think for some people, we do know that masturbation decreases stress. And in fact, in a study where they asked people, why do you masturbate? Like to go to sleep or relieve stress was the number one answer given, right? Or number three, right behind I'm horny. So yeah, we know that if you can get yourself there, it's going to help because an orgasm releases all kinds of feel good hormones. So would somebody be able to pull out their vibrator and some lube and really focus on the sensations and let go of what's troubling them? Absolutely. Or would it be like, no matter what you do, you can't stop thinking about your, what you're stressing about that can happen too. both can happen. Well, speaking to that with all the chemicals, the endorphins and the hormones, and I really do have a orgasm every day challenge. And it's because I had Dr. Stephanie Estima on the book and she had a seven day orgasm challenge and she talked about all of the health benefits. And so I did that and I was like, oh, I'm just turning this into an every day. So I literally like schedule it in. Good for you. Good for you. And do you find that it has helped your stress level? Oh, I think so. Especially once it becomes very habitual, definitely. Because then I'm very much fascinated by, because by itself, it has all these health benefits and it releases all these hormones. But then once it becomes part of your routine as well, I think just the anticipation and having it as part of the ritual adds on to that. So I found it to be very, very beneficial. The one issue is that, and this is the way I am with all things, I'm such a perfectionist, such a like craziness with my schedule that now if I don't, I feel bad, (laughs) which like I should, like I'm like hard on myself. (laughs) So. Right. Like, oh no, I didn't get to my orgasm today. Like, yeah, I'm like that with my walking and yoga, you know, cause I'm, I'm a perfectionist too, although I'm working on it. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) And mindfulness helps with that too. So, yeah, but I think, have you heard the saying, don't should on yourself? Oh, I like that. No. Yeah. So that's what I say to you. If you can do it every day, great. If it, if it, you know, days get busy, don't should on yourself. I like that. I like the one that's like, it's a really common one. Don't let, was it perfect? Be the enemy of good. Yes, exactly. I love that too. Well, this has been honestly one of my favorite conversations yet on the entire show. And I cannot thank you, Dr. Mintz, for everything that you are doing. Like we talked about all throughout this episode, it is so, so needed. And it's really affecting, I think, most women everywhere. And we need more people like you who are providing the science and shining a flashlight on what's happening in our culture and how hopefully we can change. What do you think is the future of all of this? I want to make myself obsolete. (laughs) And thank you for saying that nice compliment about, and this has been one of my favorite podcasts I've ever been on. You asked such great questions and you read the book so carefully. I'm just so pleased and honored. But I really, honestly, sometimes I can't believe I had to write this book and you know, 2018, you know, like we should be so over this by now. So, and it's hard for me to know sometimes because I'm so surrounded now by other sex positive people, like have things changed? 
or am I just more and more immersed in a world where everybody is on the same page? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to hold out hope that things are changing and that in our future, we will have sex-positive, comprehensive sex ed where people learn about the clitoris. They learn about orgasms. We name the clitoris. We don't use the word sex in intercourse as if they're one of the same. There isn't an orgasm gap. I think we'll take a long while to get there, but I think we're on the right road. I love that. I've had that same experience. I've actually been having that experience a little bit during this conversation today, like having come from my upbringing and my awareness and my thoughts surrounding all of these topics to where I am now. It's hard for me because I'm now I'm so much more open about it. It's hard for me to know, like, is it just I that changed or is there change in society as well? So I hear you. It's hard to know. But regardless, it doesn't change the fact that your work is definitely helping everything move forward in that direction. So thank you so, so much. Actually, the last question that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how incredibly important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, I love that question. I am grateful for so many things that it's hard to pinpoint one, but I am most grateful. Can I say two things? I'm gr- Yes, of course. <laughs> I'm most grateful right now for my health and my body, like that I can, my body can move in yoga, it can walk, it can orgasm. I'm, to me, that's a huge foundation. And I'm also incredibly grateful for all of the supportive people in my life who I love and who love me and who've been there for me through, you know, good and bad and everything in between. I love that so, so much. Well, thank you, Dr. Mintz. I am so incredibly grateful for your work. Like I said, at the beginning, I would just want women everywhere to read your book. How can women and men, because, oh, I should mention, I should mention there is a chapter in the book for men. So if Ladies, if um, or men who are listening, if you would like to help spread this awareness and education in the male population, they can just read this one chapter that speaks directly to them. So that was really smart to put that in there. How can people best follow your work? So the best way to follow my work is on any social media. Instagram is where I'm most active, but I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest all with the same handle, Dr. Lori Mintz, D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E-M-I-N-T-Z. Same, that's the same as my website. And if you go to my website, you'll find links to buy my books on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and all my social media, etc. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for listeners. We'll put links to everything in the show notes. We'll just have to stay in touch and hopefully you can come back again on the show in the future. I would absolutely love to. That would be great. Thank you for having me. It's been such a delight. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at melanieavalon.com. And always remember, you got this.